everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jake, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I am excited to talk with you today. Uh, we are in a series called Illegitimate, uh, and the concept here is really simple. Uh, when Jesus came, uh, he came as the Son of God, uh, he came to right wrongs, he came to give freedom, he came as the legitimate heir of God. Uh, and the people around him, especially the religious people of the time, kind of looked at him as this illegitimate person. Uh, this person who was spouting out things that weren't true, this person who was heretical in the way he came. Uh, and Jesus disproved that. Uh, he came and talked about a relationship with God. He came and talked about how to connect with the Father. He talked about all these rules and regulations people had followed. And they had gone for the letter of the law, but they had missed the intent. Jesus had this earthly ministry for three years, and then he died, rose again, left behind a group of disciples who continued to tell people about the God who loved them. And so today we're continuing in this series, and we're going to be in Matthew 22 and 23. And while I'm loath to say that some parts of the Gospels or Jesus' work are more important than others, there is this piece that you see as you get further into the ministry of Jesus uh, where he's on a time crunch. Uh, so as we get to the place we are now, uh, Jesus is on a little bit of a time crunch. Uh, he's had this ministry leading up to this point, and now he's equipping his disciples, he's equipping his followers, because soon he will be arrested, he will be crucified, he will raise from the dead, and then it's up to a group of people to continue carrying on that ministry uh, when he's not there. And so right here, what we're seeing when we jump into Matthew near the end is we're going to see Jesus talking about um, how do you interact with non-believers? Uh, how do you handle religious laws? How do you follow religious laws? And, and when do you not? So this section is really fun as we realize that Jesus is prepping his people kind of for that, that final test, that last test before they continue on. But to jump into this appropriately, it's probably important for us to talk about early 2000s to late 90s Christian culture, because of course, that is very important to what we're going to talk about today. So here's what we're going to do. I want to throw some things up on the screen, and as I do, I want you to shout if you know what this is, if you're familiar with it, and then I may also ask you to shout if you've ever owned it. And if you feel nervous about this, I've owned two out of the three of these. I won't tell you which. Here's the first one. Jesus is my homeboy shirt. Does anyone remember this? Can I get a shout if you remember it? Did anyone own it? Raise your hand. I 100% did. 100%. Um, I have a family who largely don't go to church, but they always wanted to love me and support me, and so they would buy like whatever the most popular Christian thing is. So I rocked the Jesus is my homeboy shirt, the pink one for a long time. Um, I still own it. I would offer to wear it this next Sunday, but... I guarantee it's like 11 sizes too small now, so that won't happen. All right, here's another one. Uh, Jesus is my co-pilot. Does anyone familiar with this one? Does anyone currently have this on their car? One of you does, I guarantee. Hey, if I can 
give sort of a plug here. If you have a bumper sticker or a decal like this on your car, that's great. However, if you are an aggressive or terrible driver, please remove this from your car. Uh, I was driving to Longmont to do a wedding, and this car cuts in front of like three lanes of traffic, starts screaming at people, flipping people off, and then it had a Jesus is my co-pilot logo on the back as he sped off. And it just put a sour taste in my mouth. So listen, I'm not going to critique your driving, but you know who you are and whether you should have this decal or not. Uh, and then the final one, which is probably culturally the most popular and the one that people inside and outside the church know is the WWJD bracelet. Does anyone remember this? Did anyone own one of these? Quite a few. Um, I forget what this stands for. Can anyone tell me? I totally remember what it said. I just wanted audience interaction. It's really important at nine in the morning. Um, what would Jesus do? Uh, all of these items, uh, they aimed for this goal of approachability. So they said, hey, the God that loves you, the God of the universe, uh, he's like your homeboy. Uh, he's available right next to you in any situation. God is my co-pilot. He, he's right there in every situation. And then what would Jesus do in the hard times, in the bad times, when I don't know what to do, I can ask myself, what would Jesus do? And it would give me an idea. Now, we can argue whether or not these were a good idea or bad. We can argue about the reverence of God. That's, that's a whole other topic. Um, but the idea was approachability, uh, which I love. Uh, and as we enter into the home stretch of Matthew, uh, we are going to see a situation where Jesus interacts with religious people and I believe gives us a template for our interactions with both religious and non-religious people, with religion and with faith. And if we're going to look back on that old bracelet, what would Jesus do? Today we can start asking the question, what would Jesus do and what would he have me do today? As we dive into this passage, there are three big questions I want you to be asking yourself with everything we talk about. These questions, if you are new to church, if you've never been here, if you're checking things out, if you're trying to figure out faith, these questions are going to give you a little bit of a crash course into who Jesus is and what he calls us to, what he offers and what his relationship is. And if you've been around for a while, if you know all this pretty well and you know who God is, uh, hopefully these questions either help you recognize your alignment with Jesus or give you a little bit of a gut check um, and a realignment as you think about moving forward. The questions are this. Do you know what happened when Jesus encountered sin? Do you know what happened when Jesus encountered sin? To make sure that we're all on the same page, here's how the Bible describes sin. There is a holy God and this holy God is perfect. Uh, he is without sin. He is righteous. He is holy. He is set apart. And then here is us. And there's this chasm between us and God called sin. Sin are the things that you know you shouldn't do. Uh, sin are those secret, dark things that you do and you hope nobody ever finds out about. Uh, sin are the things that you know uh, are against everything that a holy and righteous God stands for. And sin are the things that we all are guilty of 
and we all fall into. And the good news of Jesus is when he came and he died for our sins, he, he took that upon himself. And so when God sees us, he sees us as righteous, as holy, and we can go before him. But the question is, when Jesus interacted with sin, and, and when Jesus interacted with overt sin, how did he react? The second question, how did Jesus react when he encountered sinners? So if sin is the action people take that separates them from a holy God, a sinner is someone who takes that action, um, which is all of us. When Jesus interacted with people who broke God's laws, who knowingly broke God's laws, who willingly stepped into lives of sin, how did Jesus react? Now for most of us, uh, the way that we handle sin, is I think if you're a Christian, you recognize that God is holy, and you recognize that there is a version of sin that's like the worst possible person. And you think, all right, at least I'm not that. I'm probably somewhere like, like right here, which isn't great, but it's better than my neighbor Frank, because Frank is kind of a train wreck. So as long as I'm a little better than Frank, I'm probably okay. And when God sees sin... Um, he sees it all equally. Uh, he sees it all as unrighteous and wrong. Do you know what happened when Jesus encountered sinners? And the final question, which is actually like four questions, do you know what made Jesus angry? Do you know what made him hurt? What made him pause and what made him shout? And do those things make you angry? Do they make you hurt? Do they make you pause? Do they make you shout? What made Jesus angry? This week, I was looking through the book of Matthew. I started all the way back in chapter 1 up to chapter 23 we're at. And I put a list of every time Jesus interacted with somebody in sin, anytime he performed miracles. And I talked about if he ever got angry. I'm going to throw it on the screen. And none of you can read that, which means I can actually say anything. Um, Corbin, our sound guy, told me it looks like a menu, which it is not. Um, I would be willing to email this to anybody. This is a really basic search. But as I went through, there are places that Jesus interacts with sinners. There are places that Jesus interacts with sin. There are places Jesus interacts with questions. He interacts with, Christ or with Gentiles, with Jews. He interacts with all kinds of people. Uh, and I found some correlations. Uh, so first, let's talk about sin and sinner. Uh, I'm going to talk about two that aren't up on the screen because um, they're in the book of John. Uh, the first one is John chapter 4, and it's this woman at a well. Uh, this woman is at this well in the middle of the day, and Jesus comes up to her, and they begin talking. Uh, he begins asking her questions about her life, and she shares back and forth. And as they're talking, she says, you know, I'm, I'm not here with my husband. And he's like, right, because you're on husband like five or six, right? Like, you actually have not held true to some of the standards God set. You've actually gone far past that. I think you're looking for something that will make you feel whole again. Um, let me tell you what I'm offering. I'm offering you, he calls living water. And this woman is so enamored by this that she ends up taking him to her village and all these people hear about Jesus and people begin following him. Um, Jesus interacts with a woman who is in 
sin. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't raise his voice. He offers her life. The second one that's also not up here is in John 8. Um, It's a woman caught in the act of adultery. Uh, And what I love about this story is it doesn't say a woman who was accused of adultery, a a woman who people talked about as an adulteress. Uh, It doesn't talk about a woman who people thought had committed adultery. It's a woman caught in the act of adultery, a person who is sinning against God by being adulterous. And they bring her before Jesus. Jesus crouches down in the dirt and begins writing something in the dirt. We don't know what it is. Um, He's surrounded by a group of Jewish men who say, hey, by the law, um, because she's an adulteress, we can stone her. We can kill her, and it's completely legal. Jesus continues to write, and as he does, all of the men begin to walk away. We don't know what was written. Jesus stands and looks at the woman. It's just the two of them left, and he says, where are your accusers? He says, there's none here. He says, all right, go and sin no more. He doesn't pause and say, hey, lady, get your life together. Like, this is wrong. Like, God has a standard. You are breaking it. That is sin. I am holy. You cannot do that. You must fix it. Uh, he doesn't go into a long list of the rules she's broken. He doesn't go into an explanation of the fact that these Jewish men who wanted to stone her were actually in the right by the laws of the time and would have done it without punishment. Instead, Jesus says, hey, I'm not going to accuse you. Go and sin no more. And this is how Jesus interacted with sinners. Uh, This is how Jesus interacted with overt sinners, people who are caught in the midst of sin. He came alongside them and he said, hey, I love you. I don't accuse you. Go and sin no more. But there are other times that Jesus got angry. Uh, There are times that we see him raise his voice. There are times we see him insult others. There are times we see him get very direct or very argumentative. And there was almost always a correlation. He got mad when somebody got in the way of another person's relationship with God. It got him really mad. When he's on his way to show people who he is, if somebody else got in the way of that relationship, he got angry. When somebody was given the opportunity of faith, but they continued to have a lack of faith, Jesus got upset. We see situations where we have these Jewish people who have seen Jesus performing miracles all over the countryside, and they say, hey, Jesus, we don't know if you're God. And he's like, what are you talking about? I've continually shown you just follow. And the third was when people looked for technicalities rather than intent. When people looked for technicalities rather than intent, Jesus got mad. When people wanted to make sure everyone followed the exact letter of the law and did everything right and dressed appropriately and did everything the way that they should and chose to live a holy life and do everything the right way, but didn't dive into the person behind the sin didn't dive into the heart of that person, extend grace and mercy, Jesus got mad. So we're about to jump into Matthew 22 and 23. And as we do, you have to feel bad for the Pharisees um, because what's about to happen is they're about to break all three of Jesus's rules 
uh, and he's about to get really irritated. So if you have a Bible, we'll be in Matthew 22. Um, And in this section, we see the Pharisees and the Herodians, uh, members of a Jewish sect associated with the Pharisees, in opposition to Jesus and assumed to be supporters of Herod, um, as they are trying to trap Jesus. Their goal is either to get him to say something heretical to the Jewish faith or something so anti-Rome that they have a case against him. Uh, They try three different routes, and the first one is the political route, which we'll see in Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar? This is a tax that was only placed upon subjected people. Uh, So Romans didn't pay this, just the people who were subjects of the Romans. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and so they left him alone. They came and said, hey, Jesus, should we pay this tax, this arguably offensive and evil tax? Uh, They asked the question, knowing that if Jesus were to just say no, uh, he would be in defiance of Rome. He'd be committing a treasonous act. And, And if he says yes, is he putting Caesar, a man who claims to be God, above God? And how does this work? So Jesus gives the answer, uh, your government has a request for you, uh, and your God has a request for you. Do for your government what they ask, and for your God what he asks. Um, They aren't the same, uh, and they don't need to be convoluted. After this doesn't work, the second route they go for is a bit of a logic puzzle. Jesus, we're going to give you a strange situation and see if you blaspheme. And this is in verse 25. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither be married nor given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When crowds heard this, they were astonished by his teaching. Uh, The Sadducees come with this logic puzzle, saying, hey, the exact letter of the law looks like this. Can you tell us exactly what God would do in this situation, which is not dissimilar 
to if someone's ever talking to you about your relationship with God and they say, hey, quick question. Is God all-powerful? And you say, yes. And they say, can God do anything he wants? Yes. And they say, can God make a rock so heavy he can't lift it? And you go, oh, dang it, I'm not a Christian anymore. Like that foiled everything. That's what happens here. They say, hey, if a, woman, if a man dies and his wife didn't have children, it's the duty of the next brother to marry her. And if seven people marry her, who does he marry at the end? Jesus navigates this one as well by reminding them who God is and questioning their theology. As an aside from this, this section is actually really funny if you dive into who's asking the question. Uh, sometimes I think when you're figuring out the Bible, uh, there are groups of people that you just put as one group, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and when you read them, you kind of think of them all interchangeably. Uh, but if you want to take a deep dive into scripture that makes it more interesting, it's fun to research the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Herodians, and figure out what they actually believed and what their theology was. Uh, it says at the beginning of this, the Sadducee who asks this question says, hey, in the resurrection, by the way, I don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, but they were asking a technical question of Jesus, which would have been a totally different question coming from a Pharisee who did believe in the resurrection. Because technicality was more important than intent. Because technical words in the Torah were more important than what God meant. Because technicality is what we want to catch Jesus on, um, not what the intent are behind these rules. The final place they try to catch Jesus is in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with a question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and prophets hang on these two commandments. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they get together and they say, we need to get him, because Jesus is heretical. Uh, Jesus keeps on saying, some of the stuff we believe we shouldn't follow, some we should. So what we should do is ask him a question and see if he just starts to discount some of these commandments. See if he just starts to discount some of the things in the Bible. Is Jesus going to follow the technicality or not? And Jesus says, you missed the intent. Love God with all you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And throughout this whole chapter, Jesus just keeps taking questions fired at him. They ask him a question, he responds. He, he doesn't raise his voice. We don't see anger. Uh, and then in the next chapter, in Matthew 23, as Jesus again is prepping his disciples as they go forward, uh, he goes kind of on the offensive. Uh, we'll read the first section up to verse 12 in Matthew 23, and then I'm going to summarize the next part. So Matthew 23, 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They have authority. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but don't do what they do, for they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. 
Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries, boxes that held scripture, wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father who's in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said these religious leaders, they sit in seats of authority. So you have to listen to what they say about God, but don't follow them because they tie up cumbersome loads around others and they don't try to help. Uh, These religious leaders, they're going to give you a bunch of rules. They're going to give you a bunch of stuff to follow. They're going to give you the stuff you should do. And when you feel overwhelmed by those rules, they're not going to help. They're going to put themselves out there so everyone can see how great they are. When they give to the poor, they're going to make sure you know it. When they follow the rules, they're going to make sure you know it. When they know the Bible well, they're going to make sure you know it. In many ways, they put themselves above God or on par with him. And this is all they're going to receive. Further on in the passage, he begins to lash out at the Pharisees, and he says things like, um, you shut the door of kingdom. Uh, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven on people's faces, and you won't let them enter. He says you travel far and wide to convert others, and then you make them twice a child of hell as you are. He said you try to get them in by righteousness. You try to get them in by actions, but not faith. And in the end, uh, you condemn them. Here at Discovery. Uh, we have a phrase that we use. It's no perfect people allowed. Uh, And what we mean when we say that is that no matter what you're coming in with, no matter your brokenness, your story, uh, no matter who you are, no matter what has happened to you, um, you're allowed in. And the problem is, I I think the Pharisees actually would have said the same thing and then not acted upon it. Um, Because when you say something like that and you mean it, it means that we're okay with church being a little messy. It means we're okay with people walking in with junk. It means we're okay walking alongside people who are broken because we're all broken. Uh, The Pharisees said the same thing too. The difference was when you came in imperfect, they then gave you a list of rules They gave you a list of things to follow up. They made sure that you were nice and clean before you walked into the temple. And if you messed it up, well, you really weren't allowed in. Continuing on, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're like blind guides. You make it about the temple. You make it about this place and not the people, not about God, not about the God who inhabits it. He said, you're great at giving and doing the right thing, but you've missed the mark. When we count out your tithe, it's exactly 10% of everything you own down to the gram. Um, But you never give justice and mercy and faithfulness. Uh, You look for the smallest minutia to call others out on. Um, You clean the outside of the cup while the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. Hey, 
if your body, if your life, if your soul is a cup, if you clean the inside, the outside would be clean too. You just make sure the outside looks good while the inside is rotting. You say that if you had lived in a different time, you would have done things differently than others. You say that you never would have persecuted the prophets, but I tell you that you're living in such a time and you're doing the same thing. Here at Discovery, another phrase we use, uh, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, you're welcome here. The thing about that statement is when it's about no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, we don't always look like we all have it all together. Oftentimes the outside of our cup, the way that we present uh, isn't great. Uh, regardless of the work that we are trying to do, what does it look like to show up who, as you are, um, knowing you're welcome, as you continue to ask God to work on cleaning the inside of the cup? See, for me, as I read this passage, the scariest part with the Pharisees is that they were positive they were hitting the mark. And Jesus said they weren't. I don't think the Pharisees woke up one day and said, hey, let's turn church, let's turn the temple into a giant pyramid scheme where we're on the top and we collect everything and we all know it's fake, but we're going to have everyone feed up to us. No, I think the Pharisees believed every day that they were doing things exactly right. And every time Jesus interacted with them, he let them know they were missing the mark. how are you all doing with that? I had this fear of one day I would get to heaven and I would get there and I'd stand before God and I'd say, hey God, I followed your rules completely. I did what I was supposed to do. I followed every law. I followed every rule. I made sure others followed them too. And if they didn't, I made sure I called them out and made sure they knew that they missed the point. And God looked at me and said, Jake, I think you missed the point. I think you missed the mark because that's what he's saying to Pharisees. It's like they did all the studying for the test and then when it came time to take the test, they decided not to take it. I'm going to invite the band back up. Um, And as I do, let's talk about WWJD. What would Jesus do? This next part may not apply to all of you or even many of you, or maybe it does. Uh, because I think the longer you've been in church, the easier and easier it can be to get comfortable and focus on looking good, being righteous, following God, um, and rolling your eyes at those who aren't as cleaned up, who aren't following God the same, or just do it differently. Uh, Back in 2014, the lead pastor of Flatirons, a guy named Jim Bergen, wrote a book uh, called No More Dragons. Uh, And he has this concept in it that I love. And he says, what happens when one day you wake up and you look at yourself in the mirror and the person looking back at you is a dragon? Uh, He takes this from the voyage of the Don Treader from C.S. Lewis, where, spoiler to a like 70-year-old book, um, one of the characters um, who has been greedy and has been mean, he wakes up one day and he is a dragon. And the only way to fix it is through the help of Jesus. He says, what do you do when you wake up and you, you don't, like who you see. 
how are you doing when it comes to following Jesus in regards to those outside the church whose lives don't look buttoned up, who don't know the right things to say, and who the Bible would say live in sin? How are you doing comparing your righteousness to others, and are you hitting the mark? Or when you pause and think about it, when you look in the mirror, do you look back and see a dragon? A person who's more focused on people getting their lives right first and less worried about introducing them to the God that saves. And if you do have those moments, which I think happen to most of us, what do you do about it? If you want a good example of what Jesus would do when it came to sin and sinners and people who didn't have their lives right and who lived in absolute overt sin, you only have to look at John 4 or John 8 or Matthew 9. These are overt people in sin. In those times, their lifestyles don't reflect the God they've heard about, and the path they're on is not one that was accessible to the church at the time. Jesus loved them, came alongside them, called them to follow him, and ultimately was more interested in a relationship that day than fixing them that day. They didn't need to clean themselves up before they came to church because no matter what they'd done or what had been done to them, he was with them. And if you want a good example of what gets Jesus really fired up and the times you see him angry and mad and flipping tables, you can look at Matthew 21 in the temple or Matthew 23 with the Pharisees, with the Pharisees where he calls them a, a den of vipers. When someone puts themselves between other people and God, whether that's through politics, finances, extra religious hoops, or by portraying a God of rules and restrictions rather than love, that puts Jesus through the roof. What would Jesus do? He loved unconditionally. He constantly pointed people to his Father. And he welcomed messy and broken people in every single day, even to the discomfort of his people, because ultimately, a relationship with God is the best thing that can happen to anyone. And maybe that doesn't apply to anyone here. Maybe everyone here is doing a great job with that. Jesus made sure that, re that relationship came before rules. He made sure that relationship came before getting fixed. He made sure that relationship came before the outside of the cup was clean. And in doing that, he, he pointed away to his father. And then he died. And he rose again. And he left his church to a bunch of really broken people who got it right a lot of the time and really wrong a lot of the times. Uh, and he left it to us. And it's our responsibility to carry that forward. Let's pray. Hey, God, it's Jake. God, I think I get this right a lot of the time. I don't get it right all the time. Uh, the difference is that my judgment is secret. I, I keep it to myself, but it's there. God, I thank you for sending your son. I thank you for these inarguable pieces like the woman caught in the act of adultery or the party in Matthew 9 where we see your son standing alongside people who have missed the mark completely and that he just desperately loves.
And God, I thank you for the gut check of Jesus standing with religious people who care about the technicalities and not the heart, not the intent, as a reminder for what you call us to do. God, I pray for everyone in this room who takes this concept of the dragon and starts to think there are a few places that I've got those scales growing, that they would know to seek you. God, thank you. Amen.